Friends, Romans, podcast subscribers, lend us your ears. This is the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Sai. I'm Bryn. And I'm Andrew. Today we're talking about Rona Monroe's target novelization of her 2017 story, The Eaters of Light. Now, for, for older fans, like Simon here... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the target books were a staple of, sort of childhood reading, um... But what, what's it like, I suppose, for, for younger fans who've probably come to the series with the 21st century version of the show, is it something you, you've ever delved into, target novelizations, or is it sort of amusingly quaint, the idea of writing a book about something that you could watch, flick of a switch? Yeah, I mean, I've always been very aware of the legacy of the target novels in Doctor Who, just because it is something that's talked about so much, and I... I was always one of those people who, when I got a new Doctor Who DVD, would voraciously devour the special, devour the special features on the classic Who sets, and there are a number of features about Target books, and as um, I, I had read some of the classic series Target books before they started doing new series ones, I think the first one I read was the Ark in Space, and it's obviously a very different approach coming to it, because it's a story that I'd seen on VHS and DVD dozens of times before I ever read it, um, but I think... Target seems like such a huge thing. And there is a a real pleasure to the books that I think are in quite a more accessible style than other Doctor Who novels might be. They, I've always found them very enjoyable to read. And if I have a favourite classic Doctor Who story, I do try and seek out the Target novel. So I've picked up loads of random ones just from secondhand bookshops, but I've also been to, you know, Target you know, dealers, fan dealers for things like the Marco Polo one, which I particularly wanted because it's a, a favourite story. And yeah, I think, but that is a very different experience to the other way round of using it as a first entry into a story rather than a, I really like this story, so I want to see it in a different format. Hmm. Yeah, that Yeah, that was the thing that was always fascinating for me growing up about Target was that it was... For a lot of people, it was their way of revisiting a story um, as an alternative to um, having the DVD box sets. And in some cases, as Bryn just said, like it's a way into um, like for some people, like if you say were a classic fan who was growing up in the Davison era, it may be your first chance to experience. It may literally be your first chance to experience um, a Hartmore story. I've um, I've got a ton of <laughs> I've got a ton of. Um, classic target novelizations on my shelf that friends have um um gone me as birthday gifts and things over the years i have yet to get around to the reading to them to my shame like i i do genuinely want to um i yeah one thing that i do strongly remember reading actually though um from a target book was actually stephen moffat's introduction to i think it was the same arc in space one that bren mentioned um i think there was a special edition i might be wrong because it was one that Ian Martyr had um, written either way. So it might be Ark in Space, it might be not. You guys would probably be a better place to tell me on that front um, which ones he wrote. But um, And he talked about um, reading um, Ian Martyr's prose. I, yeah, I think I am fairly certain it's um, the Ark in Space because he also talked about that being like what he thought and um, be like a perfect archetypal Doctor Who story that you could do with any, um, you know, Doctor Companion team. So that that bit of writing in a Target book is um, burnt into my brain a little bit. Um, yeah, and, but like it's been great coming to them. Like I was always excited by the thought of um, seeing them come to um, the new series with them, basically, because I would always be interested to see, you know, what authors would change, how they'd adapt it. 
um, for that medium, whether they'd, you know, um, do anything experimental and strange like um, Stephen Moffat and Rob Shearman um, did, whether they'd uh, radically, with theirs, whether they'd, um, you know, radically alter the plots with or character beats like um, like Thieves of Light has, like um, Russell T. Davis did with his, or whether they'd be more straightforward adaptations and just, you know, what that would look like, basically. Um, you know, especially for stories that are, for the most part, considerably shorter than Classic Who. How do you novelize a 45-minute episode of television compared to a six-part Perkwe serial? You know, um, yeah, so it is a thing that's interesting to me, and it's been really exciting for me to kind of actually get into um, them for the first time. Well, I feel very, very old now <laughs> because I was that Davison era fan who was reading the target books and experiencing those stories through the books the first time. So from sort of five to 15, um, which was when I completed my set in 1990, I was reading, I, I read the whole lot sort of voraciously. So it was, it was, yeah, I, and I've never really sort of stopped to think about it because it was just something that I did. It was part of my Doctor Who fandom was you had the target book. That was the only way you were going to experience those stories because there was no chance you were ever going to actually see them, let alone sort of um, half of them didn't exist or so it seemed. Um, and then actually the chance of seeing anything sort of pre-Davison seemed really unlikely. So, yeah, I mean, for for nearly every story sort of post um sort of pre-destiny of the daleks the books were my my first introduction to the story so yeah it was um just one of those things and it was kind of interesting for me because the books grew up almost with me so i started with the very young uh, very short terence dix books and by the time we got to the end of the range we'd got um the Curse of Fenric and um, Remembrance of the Daleks, which were incredible novels uh, in their own right, let alone as Doctor Who, they were sort of far beyond the target books that I remembered, like The Invisible Enemy or Nightmare of Eden, which were like a straight, um, he said, she said, adaptation of a story um, into something incredible and sort of really thought-provoking. So I was I was sort of at the right age, I think, to sort of go through that and have the, the books grow up with me. That's great, yeah. It's interesting as well that in terms of that classic target experience of, you know, stories that you were never able to watch on television because you missed because they were before you were born, experiencing them through a novel first time that way. The closest thing I had to that in terms of Doctor Who fandom was actually um, the Sarah Jane Adventures novelizations because their first couple of series of those received, I think, some sort of hardback novelizations that were probably around very similar style mm. to the target in a lot of ways and. You know, that was in the days before we had um, DVD players or BBC iPlayer, certainly not a DVD player in our household. So I had a, a similar experience with something mm. that obviously isn't under the target in print, but a novelization being the only way I could watch a story that I missed because I was not home on that day. Um, so that's the closest I'll be able to come for someone <laughs> of my generation. But it's quite interesting to think that it is actually almost a shared little experience there, but very different, but now it's almost completely impossible because with the advent of iPlayer and such things, it is just instantaneous, but you can rewatch something and we do take that for granted a bit, I think. It's, um, it's one thing that, I, one aspect of this that I 
do remember like I think I'd um yeah when I first got into Doctor Who fandom I'd read a lot of um reviews on um the Doctor Who ratings guide I think it was um and I remember reading um some reviews from fans on there that would you know talk about classic serials and they'd be talking about like watching the serial negatively compared to the experience of reading the target book because reading the um target book you'd be imagining all these like you know alien planets and they'd look wild and exciting all these um jungle sets and they'd be spooky and atmospheric and then you'd um go back they'd be going back you know finally able to watch these stories on vhs or whatever and suddenly it's um you know the sets are you know they're on a BBC budget. You know they um, and it can't match what your what um, Terence Dix's prosons their um, brains had cooked up in their imaginations, basically. And that's um, that's it's true. That's why I have a. That's why I don't like Planet of the Daleks very much because reading the book, it was a fast-paced, exciting adventure <laughs> in a magnificent jungle with ice volcanoes going off all over the place. Mm covering the jungle in in ice and all sorts and what we got on tv was not quite what i'd i'd had in my head all those years as a as a kid so sam you said you completed your collection in 1990 you showed it with uh with your collection and the various different covers and spines oh i'm 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 still going back now and completing that bit so i got a i had a collection of the um all the original editions with all the original covers. That was my aim. And now, as I get older, I think, well, I could just get all the different covers. That would be nice, wouldn't it? And <laughs> oh, I've got space for them all. I could just keep going. So I'm nearly there. And it's exciting to add to them with uh, 21st century series adaptations. Or is it tinged with melancholy? Because we'll never live long enough to see them all novelised and have a full <laughs> Well, at the rate they're going, we're never going to live to see them all novelised. <laughs> It's one of those things I remember there was quite a lot of talk um, before the series came back um, in 2005 about whether there would be novelizations and people saying, oh, no, the time of those is past. That's never going to happen. We won't get any of that. Everyone can buy the DVDs straight afterwards. Why would you why would you do that? So it's been interesting over the last few years to get these new novelizations and people um, the the authors seem really keen to to have done them, which has been really good. So to get Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat to do do um, one each was just a really amazing start to to the new range. So yeah, it's it's been lovely, and it's it's um it's funny. I said every so often I send my mum a picture of me reading one of the new books just to say that nothing has ever changed in my life. <laughs> so no, I think it, I think it's a a really great thing and it's it's nice to see the love from from new fans for for these novelizations as well as us older fans yeah i keep expecting to see one announced by pete mcteague because no he's a big target collector as well as there's an article in i think it was one of the doctor magazine special editions about he, he collected them all um and then went and collected all the hardbacks as well which is a very costly endeavor uh, so uh, yeah, he's really into them. So it seems like only a matter of time before we'll get Kablam or something uh, novelized. I'd imagine. I feel like I'd be interested to see him adapt someone else's as well. That's always the thing. I think um, since that first wave of new series target ones, we've just had authors doing their own, which you know makes a lot of sense and I can see the rationale for. But that Paul Cornell adaptation of Twice Upon a Time was really interesting. I just 
I kind of mm. think obviously some writers are less likely to do their own or they've got a huge catalogue of stories. You know, both Moffat and Davies pretty much said we're doing one and that's it. And while mm. I'd love to think they might change their mind in 10 or 20 years, um, <laughs> it'd be nice, I think, to have more novelizations by... And I can imagine Pete Matisse would have a lot of love for a lot of other stories as well as much I'm mm. sure he'd like to do his own ones too. And Chris Jimnall as well. Uh, they say Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat haven't adapted one of their stories each. It'd be interesting to see Chris Chibnall do The Woman Who Fell to Earth or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be good. It does seem a pity that this this time round we haven't got one of from the Jodie era as well. So mm. I think that feels like a bit of an an oversight. But maybe uh, it's just one of those things, I guess. Maybe the authors are just not around to do them, but. It's a bit of a shame. I suppose the very current era, these are people currently working in TV and probably quite busy, yeah. aren't they? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, the, that's probably the downside. Yeah, so, yeah, we've only had The Witchfinders so far, which is, I, I really love that novelization, actually. I think yeah. Witchfinders is an underrated story in general. Um, but, like, yeah, I thought, and I thought that brought out kind of the themes of the uh, book um, wonderfully. I remember reading your review of that, actually, Bryn. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I thought, yeah that, you know, I liked what you said about, you know, um, that. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I, I'd love to see a few more um, Jodie ones, whether it's from the writers or other people, you know, yeah. taking on the material and doing their own takes on it. There's got to be a good Finney Patel, Demons for Punjab one, I reckon, if yeah. he's got the time be for good, it. it. Like, I think... There's a few of those series 11 ones, they've got such sort of mm. authorship, it feels like, you know, it feels like there's a real sense of an individual writer having an individual take on Doctor Who. And so I think it'd be nice mm. to get some of those in expanded into the novel format, like The Witchfinders is, which is, is still one of my favourites, I think, of uh, I think, new series novelizations. Yeah, I think Mallory Blackman for... Um, Rosa seems like an obvious, you know, like I mean, one that does, doesn't it? I was just going to say that. Chattelore, <laughs> it's another but... thing, but it's an obvious one to go for, you know. Yeah, it, it might be slightly the Douglas Adams problem, though, of her being like quite a f- famous author, yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah, Douglas Adams, wasn't it? That you know, I, I write bestsellers, like they, they can't afford me yeah, yeah. to adapt uh, to my Doctor Who scripts. So. Mm. Do you think they would do Flux as one long book or? Uh, <laughs> that'd be hefty, I think that'd be the way to do it, maybe. But I don't know. It's it'd be a huge book, wouldn't it? I suppose it's. But then, you know, Key to Time and Trial of the Time Lord—they're both all, all separate books. So, but that is it. It's about the length of um, what the War Games, and they got yeah. that into 130 well, pages. So you never know. The, the Daleks' master plan is split in two, isn't it? So maybe that's you could true. Do, uh, mm-hmm. A flux one, a two, a two mm-hmm. part flux, and then you'd have to come up with individual titles for each one. It'd be interesting to see mm-hmm. what that would be. Yeah, Doctor Who and the Flux and the War of the Sontarans. That's what you want on your spine. We have leader to trap one. Emergency alert to all radar stations. Uh, but today's author is uh, writing her second target novelization, Rona Munro. Previously, she wrote Survival for season 26 and adapted it into a target book and now she has adapted her own novelization of the eaters of light so these are one of the more sort of straight novelizations not not quite like uh like you're saying like radically altered andrew i think it's it's not experimenting with say form in the way that day of the doctor does and like well that plays around with authorship or um or the way that Dalek plays with the like you know it's almost a series of short stories and it's delving into the perspectives of the individual characters and stuff like that 
but it's um i do think um i do think it's clearly like different from the um text in some very notable ways i think i mean Monroe's talked about this a bit in interviews um she did an interview um where um she talked about like doing her novelization for survival and thinking that was a bit of a you know what simon called her he sh- he said she said just straight adaptation just turn the um text into turn the um yeah turn the script into a novel um she said that this one she felt was she wanted to try and change things up a bit more maybe bring out some themes more i think there are things that i noticed were um different just you know little details like i mean quite a lot of the uh jokes yeah there's just a basic sense that well things that were obviously moffat were cut in the final episode were cut like the missy scenes at the end she openly said that those were moffats and there's other lines of dialogue uh one that i was quite sad to lose is the uh, death by scotland joke yeah. for example <laughs> which is very but funny you know it's um but yeah, if it's I, I get the sense of like not wanting to take if that was a Moffat line, and I may be wrong of not wanting to um have someone else's joke in your book, basically. Yeah, you so might My reaction to seeing that joke cut was kind of an initial kind of like, oh, that's a shame. But then sort of having a think about it and thinking, in a way, so much of that joke is in the performance. But I mm. think actually, you know, that, that joke is is Matt Lucas saying. I mean, it's really it's the face that Peter Capaldi pulls looking yeah. at Matt Lucas <laughs> afterwards, and I don't think you would get that on the page. So I sort of, mm. but I think there's a, um, I think there's multiple jokes mm. that are snipped, and it's 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 not a humorous novel by any means, but it does seem to take it. It's it does seem slightly more serious than the yeah. on screen version, and I was interested I think... by that sort of tone change. Yeah, there's other there's other things as well. Um, like it's um, yeah. I think yeah. I don't want to dive in on all the things because other people might want to have same things to say that they picked up on themselves. But take for example the start, the like conflict between Bill and the Doctor. Um, well, I think in the show it's played as just a jokey disagreement. Who's gonna like? It's almost like they're having a little bet with each other about who's gonna who has the right theory about the disappearing Ninth Legion. Um, and whereas in this, it seems, you know, we're given like very POV view into like Bill's mind as she goes through that argument. And you can tell it's um, a thing of wanting to be um, proved right where she um, hasn't before, um, you know, where, and like feeling like the doctor who's generally, you know, um, given her, you know, opportunities to like prove her intelligence and her worth is kind of shutting her down on this thing and so it's it's a more serious conflict for her in this one i think yeah i think the thing about the scottish jokes that is very stephen moffat isn't it it's like the fry something in the 11th hour uh, <laughs> and various jokes like that and even when he was on room 101 with frank skinner i think one of the ones things he tried to put in room 101 was being scottish so it's got that very <laughs> self-deprecating scottish uh, scottish short humor yeah that uh that yeah, maybe Ronan Monroe doesn't share, or like you say, didn't didn't want to use his joke or something. I was gonna say it's interesting what you were saying as well about the, how that argument become, between Bill and the Doctor comes across more serious on the page. I think there's I can't tell whether it's just because you're reading the dialogue without Capaldi's performance, or if it is a change in emphasis. But I think the mm. Doctor comes across a bit colder in this than on, mm. in the on-screen version. You know, I think the moment where. Um, Bill comes up, up from, from the ladder and out and they sort of reunite in that story. I was surprised by how sort of cold the Doctor's reaction felt because he's clearly spent the entire novel, you know, 
worried and and kind of mm. yearning and hoping for it to come back and that you've got bill there who's clearly thinking kind of um you know is reluctant and not quite sure whether it's the right moment to hug the doctor and i was expecting the way you'd play that would be that before she'd even finish that thought process the doctor would hug her but instead it's quite a not standoffish but there's an interesting moment there and i was i was mm. curious about that characterization because i think it sort of almost links back to a kind of i think the perceived characterization of what people thought peter capaldi's doctor was like early mm. on and how you know he is at times in series eight. i think sometimes it's over um over egged but that's his p- portrayal and that the, the softness is kind of there but it was interesting to see if that was a characterization that maybe fit more in line with how his doctor was perceived early on i do wonder as well whether there's an element of rona monroe is coming to this as a classic writer you know obviously like you know and it's sort of that you know more austere more removed vibe that you know isn't necessarily all or even most classic doctors but is sort of maybe more associated with the classic doctors than the new ones as a rule you know and capaldi especially was you know and that kind of does go back to the you know way we think about capaldi because he's um a doctor who's um you know seen at the time as you know going back to some of those classic doctor things as well yeah it's very interesting isn't it because i wonder if this is what because how it was written in the in the original script and Mm. how much comes from peter capaldi's um performance to make these lines to sort of play against these lines and play it in a different way Mm. and it's always really interesting with a novelization to see what the author um, or the scriptwriter um, has um, considered in the performance, and how much is interpreted by the actors playing it. So, because it's very definitely um, Peter Capaldi's Doctor, without a doubt, it's the Twelfth Doctor. But mm-hmm. it's like you say, a different emphasis of him, and his season um, series ten persona is is a lot warmer than he comes across in this book. Mm-hmm. Even with the little kids, when they're coming up with the plan of how they're going to to trap the beast and things like that, he's a little bit and and again on screen it would be it would probably play differently, but he's a little bit shorter and sharper, isn't he? When the the little kid keeps making like gestures, um, and he says something like, "Are you daft?" and you know, "You're delusional" and that kind of thing. It, it does come off across a little bit more curt. Than, than you used to in being in this era. I did like how that moment as well felt like the Doctor's lecture scenes at the start of Series 10 as well, where he's mm. kind of doing it to all these children. And I kind of, it kind of almost got me thinking about how, from the Doctor's perspective, in terms of age, there's very little difference between him lecturing to an amphitheatre of uni students and lecturing to these, um, you know, um, Scottish children. <laughs> Yeah, moving away from the Doctor's um, characterization, I did like how the novelization, that's another like little difference between the novelization and the episode, and this is just a basic issue of um, actors and who they employ to play the roles because of, well, child labor laws, I imagine. Um, you know, they, um, you know, like where like the um, actors are, you know, adult actors, presumably in their early 20s generally, playing characters who are meant to be teenagers. Like, you know, in this... Um, you know, in the book, it really emphasizes their youth a lot of the time, the youth of the Picts and, and the ninth people from the Ninth Legion. Um, to, um, yeah, really emphasize the fact that this is a coming of age story for Carr and for um, Lucius in particular. Um, 
you know, and that's and I think that's like the core difference between this and the um, TV show as well is that this really emphasizes um, the stories of the guest characters in the sense that the Doctor and Bill and Nardole are just kind of dropping in on this. Like it even has that pause mid-story to just really expand on their um, backstories a lot. Yeah, and I think that was the triumph of this novelization was um, those scenes um, showing Carr car sort of coming of age and becoming the gatekeeper and Lucius joining the um the ninth legion and his sort of coming of age and falling in love and all of that was was really well done that was really nice detail yeah. that sort of comes out a bit on tv but not in the same kind of detail and that's that's what makes a good novelization i think where you've got that added detail yeah, and it was great to see another structural approach to doing a target novelization because, you know, I, I opened it and sort of mm. read the contents page and thought, oh, that's interesting. We've not got chapter titles, but we've got this book one, book two, book three. And then seeing how that played yes. out, how book one and three are basically our television narrative with a few changes. And then book two in the middle is this whole mm. passage of two different narratives putting in between. And it, it was also interesting to compare, I think, um, to Dalek, which... It's interesting, in many ways, Dalek is one of the straightest adaptations that we've had in modern series, except for every other chapter that's a mm. completely independent short story. Yeah. But I actually think, looking at the chapters that are telling the TV story of Dalek, that's very, he said, she said, um, done very well. Mm. But if anything, even less changes than in this narrative has for its Doctor Who episode bits. And so it's a, a, a great way to read it. And um, the, it, it carried really well. There's not that thing you sometimes get. One of the things I've often said with Doctor Who media of any kind is sometimes you get a bit bored in the scenes where the Doctor's not there and if, if the companions aren't there. I get that a lot with audio dramas or sort of some of the new series adventures, the original Doctor Who novels. But this is, you know, you absolutely get carried through by Ronan Monroe's um, prose and you know that on the other side... I think it's it was very clever to put it in the middle. I think if you tried to start with it, it wouldn't work. I don't know, you know, you, but I like that she committed to having it be a block rather than trying to split it up into lots of little flashbacks. And I think it, it was really effective in the end, yeah. I thought it worked really well. And it was nice in terms of showing the similarities between Lucius and Carr's upbringing, the way they both took on responsibility really young and early in their lives. Mm-hmm. And the way they both work with animals, which isn't so much in the TV episode, but but comes into its own in the the TV story, that that they were used to shepherding and herding animals, sort of thing. But then the difference is being that Car had this really really idyllic childhood, which was absolutely amazing in, in a place she thought was paradise, and Lucius, in order to escape, it was a really harsh life, ended up like ruining other people's <laughs> lives mm. basically by by joining the army and uh you know it talks about their march through England to get to Scotland and and the the battles that they would fight and the people that would have to quell on the way and things like that so and how cold it was <laughs> I loved that that cold and damp that gets <laughs> into you <laughs> yeah. I also loved the um detail I think well, loved it some it's one of those moments where it gets at the horror of um imperialism and empire was um 
that bit, you know, and really strengthens the novel's critique is um, the bit where um, Lucius kind of admits to himself that he starts to hate the um, Celts and their face. I can't remember the exact line now, but that, I remember that being a moment that just really stuck out to me because they were threatening him. And um, I can't remember the name of um, yeah his trust now. Yeah, that's it, Sextus. Yes, um, and like you know, and so he's you know because there are threats to him and his friends and the man he loves, that's, um, you know, he, that makes him hate these people whose homes he's invading, you know? It's, um, but he can't see it that way, you know? Yeah, it is fascinating because by starting with his story as a child, you really get, you know, on his side, you know, he's coming from this mm-hmm. background. It is that classic coming-of-age story where he's escaping from one situation, but then it's, as you say, you get to that bit in the passage where he's describing, like, a real visceral hatred and a real there's a a very clear othering when it's describing how he sees the Celts from his perspective where he doesn't see them as people in the same right as him and that's such a a a dark thing to be reading from a character you've just seen you know grow up over the course of Mm -hmm. a few chapters um to and it's it really does emphasize that sort of imperialist perspective of Romans I think you're absolutely right Mm -hmm. that was a bit that I read but I thought yeah it's very you kind of have to go there telling this story, but it's 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 bold and it feels um, bold um, in a Doctor Who novel as well. Yeah. yeah, and that you get it from both sides is really fascinating because you get the Celt side of the invaders coming in as well into their idyllic land, into their idyllic lifestyle and ruining all of that and slaughtering everyone. So, yeah, it's not it's quite even-handed, I think, Mm. Yes, I think it is, but I think also it ultimately reminds me of um, yeah of one of yeah I've just realised now it reminds me of Princess Mononoke like my my literal favourite film ever, um, which is you know again it's about exploring kind of um, colonialist conflict and um, you know um, human you know hum, um, it's got um, Iron Town um, led by a woman called Lady Eboshi um, who's um, kind of at war with the um, animals of the forest who are kind of um, very much unconscious and alive. Um, just giving as quick a summary as I can of the core conflicts of Princess Mononoke um, for anyone who doesn't know. Um, and like, yeah, and um, Lady Ibo- it would be very easy for that movie to paint Lady Eboshi as just a straightforward villain who hates nature and is destroying trees um, and, you know, and, you know, tell it like, I don't know, like like James Cameron's Avatar or something. Um, but it's, um, there's, it does that in a much more interesting way by make, by humanizing her, by showing that the people, you know, in Irontown are, you know, are former brothel workers who she's rescued from um, sex work and being exploited, um, lepers who she's, um, you know, given... Um, dignity and good treatment, but notably she's exploiting these people to work lengthy shifts and um, um, running Iron Town and um, building weaponry for her war. So um, you know, there's always this sense that yes, she's helping these people, she's given them a better life, um, and so you sympathise with her and you see the complexity of that. But also, she's still destroying the forest and throwing nature out of balance, and she's kind of exploiting them herself. Just better than the previous people who exploited them. Um, and I think, you know, there's a similar dynamic here, really. You know, um, Lucius is given a better life, but he was, explo- you know, he's, you know, just being exploited by the Roman army to go and, you know, wage war and put his life at risk, really. Um, 
you know, and, um, you know, ultimately what they're doing is invading people's homes, you know, and I think yeah, the novel is very clear in its sympathies, even as it understands where the Roman soldiers are coming from, basically. And the Celts, uh, like you're saying about sort of nature and, and machinery and stuff, the Celts are much closer to nature, they can communicate with the crows and they you know, it's all about the uh, the path of the sun and, and that kind of thing. And then the Romans come across, it's all, you know, kind of carts and armour and shields and, and, you know, much more kind of uh, industrialised uh, almost, isn't it? Oh, very much so. I and mean, I, the whole stuff with the crows I found really brilliant as well and it read to me very much like sort of an Aesop's fable where it's how the crows lost their voice almost or how they gained just one lost the the chance to speak to people but gained just one word and sort of through that I thought that was was really sort of magical and and brilliant sort of right at the end that was a really great few passages yeah it's one of my favorite details from the tv episode i just think one of the most memorable bits for the revelation that the crows are saying car's name repeatedly and it's just it's one of those bits of doctor who that's sort of this perfect balance of kind of poetic and silly at the same time (laughs) and now every every time i see a a bird cawing is all i can think about so it's those bits of doctor Who that actually change how you look at the world in a little way i think (laughs) um and it was lovely to hear it described here and more focus on the birds. I think actually having their, um, you know, where the doctor's communicating with them and the birds are having an active role in the plan in the sense that they are giving the first alarm bell for when the gate's opening and what the, um, the, the creature's doing. I thought that was great to really integrate that more and stuff that would have been quite difficult to do on screen without, you know, much more time with the birds which i imagine you know never work with animals or children it's uh, much easier to do in a novel certainly yeah because there's that great passage isn't there where you've got the birds all swooping down on the beast and you've got the ones with the with the worse eyesight sort of describing things and then suddenly the crows coming in who can see much better and describing what's going on and you're sort of right there with them as they're swooping in and it, it's really, really brilliant. And obviously they couldn't have done that so well on TV. This is where, again, where where the prose really works to the story's advantage. And there's stuff with the with the bull and the cattle, which obviously would have been difficult to achieve as well, is all from the early drafts. If you read the, the complete history of, of this story, the early drafts had that kind of sacred bull and, and, and the, the, the beast kills and things, so... Uh, it's given Rona Monroe the opportunity to bring in her early vision as well, which is uh, which is really nice. Uh, mm-hmm. When you were mentioning um, about the the really memorable bit there, um, Bryn, uh, for me one of the really memorable scenes is the conversation that Bill has with Lucius. Um, but they've they sort of completely rewritten his backstory, haven't they? So he's he's basically grieving through the story because Sextus has been killed by the beast so he doesn't he then is not in a position where he's trying to flirt with Bill and, and winking at her and everything but it, it's such a memorable scene when when Bill thinks she's sort of saying something which is gonna shock them because uh, she's so far back in history but then you know they're like well this is this is the norm for our society so uh so it was a sh- I felt like it was a shame to lose that because it was such a memorable scene and she could have maybe had that with one of the other Roman soldiers you know, even even if Lu- Lucius then wasn't, you know, kind of uh, trying to flirt with her or anything. 
anybody else miss that? It is a fascinating yeah. one because there was a lot, lot stuff like that that was taken out, and um, we've already talked about um, the the loss of that kind of one, a, a couple of the jokes, and also the opening scene and the messy stuff. I think um, it was um, Max um, Shevsky on Twitter said something along the lines of, um, you know, talking about this novelization, saying. Um, for everything I love that it's taken out, it's replaced it with something that I love even more. And I think that's kind of how I've... Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really great moments from the TV show that just aren't in here. And yet mm-hmm. all the additions are just amazing. And I think that is kind of the trade-off there with Lucius, as you said, is that instead of this kind of sort of offhand thing, which obviously meant to cement the idea that the Roman society is less um, fixed in terms of sexuality instead becomes an entire huge part of his backstory. And so mm. instead of this little, which means that from Bill's perspective, there's never a sort of, it's interesting because Bill's obviously being told this narrative, but we never get to see Bill's moment of sort of recognition of the fact that, oh, the person I'm speaking to is um, gay, even if you wouldn't use that language to describe it. Um, so in a way, it is a shame to lose that, her moment of recognition and maybe kind of feeling, you know, some familiarity there um but i do like that rather than it just being a kind of incidental like because there's a lot of Mm. actually when you look at modern doctor who there's a lot of these sort of characters that we think of as gay characters are often just kind of off the cuff lines that are kind of there for a bit of you know flavor or a bit of amusement with her so to have a full story about that even if it is one that ends um tragically i think is Mm. a trade-off that i really like as much as i do miss the original scene as you said yeah, because I think I think Ron, this is another thing that Monroe talks about in interviews, and it's it's a nice story about how you know making the TV episode. Stephen Moffat said he you know knew that you know she'd tried to get as much sub- lesbian subtext as she could into survival, and so he said, yeah, how about we? And he'd said to her, how about we do some uh, text this time? Basically, how, how about we do some, uh, yeah, some yeah, some stuff that's actually you know open this time because we can do that now, and so they did. They got that scene in there. But, um, you know, she said she just, you know, wanted to push that further in this novelization. So I can see why, you know, like Bryn said, that scene was taken out to do Lucius's plot this way instead. And I do, yeah, I do think it's, uh, you know, it takes a moment that's lovely and, you know, an intelligent, you know, way of communicating that our attitudes to sexuality aren't one of straight, constant progress, that, you know, there are ways in which, you know, society can actually have been in a place that was where we were now and then it can drop off and get better again and you know these things aren't fixed um but then you know that's become this and there's still elements of that in you know the story we get here just in the way that you know it is casually referenced that these soldiers you know lucius and uh, sextus aren't the only soldiers who have this kind of relationship in the roman army um but it's also I was going to say, um, yeah, it's also, um, yeah, it's also just a very moving story, and it gets you know a lot of length and depth that they don't have time to give in the TV show as well, and that's nice. Yeah, I thought it was again that was really nicely done. I liked the sort of slow realization from their friends that this was something more than just the two of them playing around because they were bored or there was a, an attraction, but there there was actually a really deep love between them. And 
that they just all applauded that and that mm. was wonderful and that's a great message to give to to any younger readers sort of reading this to sort of that affirmation in a doctor who book it's not something i thought i would see when i was young and i wish i had <laughs> yeah yeah the, the moment as well kind of i think of lucius realizing what his feelings for sexus are is described in such a great a way that really kind of almost moved me and i kind of i i realized very quickly that that was the kind of narrative we were getting with lucius's backstory but it's it's the way it effectively describes in a couple of paragraphs his kind of butterflies almost like his having a feeling not knowing what it is realizing what it is um but he never uses the word butterflies i think rona monroe i think it's probably for me one of the highlights of her prose in terms of the way it captures that human feeling of kind of being in the company of something and knowing you're feeling something different with them to everyone else and that moment of realizing i do i think i'll have to revisit that passage because it genuinely i was reading it and actually getting kind of emotional thinking yeah that's such a perfect it's so perfectly described which makes it you know all the more tragic what does happen and i think what when you're reading that passage you kind of you already know has happened because you've read the first book which sextus isn't there and it's kind of the obvious way that the narrative's going especially with him as the kind of um sextus as the one in charge almost the mentor figure it's that classical story beat that he then is the one to die but yeah so I think they also change Carr's backstory a little bit in terms of, and I think this is something that's from an earlier draft as well, the idea that she wasn't just the guardian of the gate, that her role was to pass the weapons on to the next warrior that would go into the uh, into the cairn to, 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 to battle the beast. And there's much more nuance in that bit, I think, in terms of her decision to let the beast out to fight the Romans although she's carrying a little bit of guilt about that or you know she kind of realizes what she's done that potentially she's going to end the world because the uh the creature's going to eat the sun as the doctor points out there's nothing she could have done anyway because the next warrior was her brother who had already been killed by the romans so even if she'd uh, blown the horn that was going to summon the next warrior it, it wouldn't have actually made any difference so although she uh it's quite a dramatic bit that the book opens with when the old warrior stumbles out and he says, the beast's coming, and she says, let it come. It's quite a cool moment, but yeah, she couldn't really have done anything at that point anyway, could she? So I thought that was, uh, it was it was interesting in terms of how it set up, how that society works, how they'd, how they'd built it around protecting the gateway, that you know somebody from every generation was chosen to be the next warrior and the next gatekeeper. Um, and the the previous gatekeeper, her relation that <laughs> that she was being relieved of duty and replaced by Car, because obviously she's just had an incredibly boring few years of, <laughs> of just spending every waking moment sitting outside this uh, this hut for for something that never ever happened. So yeah, I, I quite like that part as well, and it, it just added some nuance, I thought. Yeah, and I really like the description of what Car was like as a child. This kind of image of her as this very very enthusiastic, very capable, but almost almost came across a little precocious. You know, there was an element of that kind of, you know, she's she's good, she's maybe the most able, capable child of her age in the tribe, and she knows that and is kind of, and I think that's quite, and I'm sure it's something, um, you know, it's, I'm almost tempted to make an Adric comparison. Obviously, it doesn't go quite <laughs> as far as that, but, but there is an element of that kind of image, and I think, as a um, a substitute for potentially what the Doctor Who fan reading it might have been like as a child. I feel like there's 
you know, there's something you can reach there to relate to, even with this character that's so out of context um, for us. And I do like that element. And that when obviously she discovers about the role of the gatekeeper, she she just is like, yeah, that's that's me then. That's what I'm going to do. And just um, you know, they, as I think it's the adults respond to you know you, you, you're meant to wait until we've um offered it until you asked like, isn't it yeah, yeah. um <laughs> but i i liked that element it, it did i think it humanized her a lot because it's it's so true of what um children can be like and i i i did enjoy that and it just um it then added to kind of the tragedy of how subdued she feels later on because her world has been taken from her mm-hmm. and um you know it kind of it almost makes I think more sense of you know the ending both for her and for Lucius they both lost so much their commitment to go into that um portal knowing that that's their lives gone then um makes so much sense when it comes from this place that they've kind of already lost everything and um yeah there's something to to get these whole stories both of them basically from childhood to what is effectively their, their death. Um, it, it really hits in, in a way that it just doesn't manage to on screen because with guest characters, you're just never going to have that much perspective on them. Well, yeah, you get a lot more time with the characters, like you say, and I think the last third of the book, so book three, it's all about the plan, isn't it? So it, it it's really given room to breathe how they come up with the plan. I love those scenes of the Doctor uh, coming up with the plan, but like a teacher or a lecturer he's he's uh sort of supplying the answers by asking the right questions of the kids so they come with the stuff and i think bill and nadal realize well that's how that gives them ownership because they feel like it's their idea um and they they're going to buy into the plan and, and and go for it more and those scenes are great and it seeds much earlier what the doctor's intention is that he's going to go in to the portal and basically spend eternity battling the things and then bill's realization and her plotting behind the doctor's back with other characters and how they're going to prevent the doctor doing that that all has much more impact and much more weight because it's it's they could give really give it room to breathe and it's not as sudden when um because i watched those little bits again this afternoon because i was I couldn't quite remember how it played out, uh, having watched it the other day. But yeah, it's all very quick, isn't it? It's like, I'm going to do it, no, you're not, knock on the head uh, and drag him away. Yeah, and, and one of the then, troubles with it on screen, I think, was that it felt so similar to the ending of The Lie of the Land, which was only a couple of weeks before, where the Doctor's going to make the big sacrifice, but instead they kind of knock him out, incapacitate him, and somebody else um, does it instead. And so with that, that little issue, with that repeated beat, I think is almost resolved here by, as you say, it becomes a bigger part of the narrative. It's a bigger choice and the people replacing him get more time to justify what their reason is for doing that and make it as a very active choice rather than a spontaneous one. Yeah. Those lovely scenes with Car and Lucius um, making peace with each other and, and understanding each other and realising what their similarities are as well mm-hmm. is, is lovely and, and making that pact between them, I think. I think I'm try- I'm struggling to remember the exact beat. I've been flicking through the pages trying to find it. Um, 
But yes, there's um there's a bit with um a very yeah, the bit where um a very small child um asks the doctor what um I think what he can do in his son. And um the doctor gives him like a so that's it, he gives him a safe job to do of like a, the safest possible job to do of like hiding behind a rock and making lots of noise to disturb the creature. Um, you know, and then like the little kid's um, older sister, I think it is, just like gives Doctor like a like nod of thanks or something after the Doctor says that. I think, you know, like that's a nice moment of, you know, the Doctor trying to, um, again, like include all of the um, community. But also, you know, also it's just a nice warm moment of him protecting this child while also making mm-hmm. him feel involved. It's, um, yeah, that's, that's a really nice beat. And I think that's very, what you were talking about, we were talking earlier about how, um, you know, the, the novelization plays 12 is colder and more austere, but that's that's a very nice moment of 12's warmth and the way it comes yeah. through with him as a character, I think, as well. Yeah, I've just found found the passage here and it says, because um, the Doctor says, he looks at the boy and says, yes, you're absolutely terrifying me. <laughs> now go and wait over there behind that rock. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> just... Just brilliant, yeah, it, and it's really nice. Yeah, it's a nice, it's and, interesting with those additional beats, but obviously weren't very episode. And yeah, I can act, absolutely imagine how Capaldi would deliver that line, the kind yes. of um, sort of sarcastic, sarcastic wryness of it. And I do think on screen, Peter Capaldi is great with um, children. You know, in in the Forest mm. of Night, for example. So in a in a way, it is a shame we didn't get to see that in the TV episode of this, where they obviously made the, the the children feel much younger in the book and i think that's that's great because i really you know i like the 12 doctor paired with children i think it works really well as a dynamic and so those those scenes really stand out and that little kid in particular i think is 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 great i was almost really hoping that at the end there would be you know a moment where he he did something that actually was really effectively scary or you know he managed to be particularly loud or something but no um <laughs> I'll wait for the sequel. And he didn't, he didn't end up in the battle as well, which I was quite pleased with. He's uh, he's escaped at the end. But just just remember that there's there's one line, out, two, two words really, which I thought was brilliant, uh, a brilliant evocation of the way Capaldi's doctor is, and um, it's earlier on in the book, um, and it is a bit that's uh, that's in the TV show when he's talking to the young Picts. And and he says, "Did you hear that noise? It's the sound of my patience shattering into thousand pieces." And then uh, it says he knocked the boy's spear, and then he goes horribly gentle. Uh, and that uh, mm. those two words a really mm-hmm. lovely way of describing the way Peter Capaldi delivers lies. Sometimes, isn't it? It's uh, horribly gentle. That's terrific. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. Because uh, one of the things that sort of did bother me a little about the book was that there was a lack of description of people and what's going on in their faces and things like that, which I found quite difficult because I think that would have adjusted some of the way that we're feeling about the Doctor particularly because you could see on TV Peter Capaldi might be playing Mm. that with a smile or something like that. But there's very little description of what anyone is like and what their faces are doing and how they're moving and things like that, which... I thought was a, a bit of a pity. So I was looking forward to a Rona Munro description of the Doctor and Bill and Nardle and things like that. And you get descriptions of their, what they're wearing and, and, and stuff, but not necessarily what they're like, what they look like. Yeah, <laughs> Nardle's having a pale face or something like that. But yeah, no, you mean there's, there's no sort of description of expressions or yeah reactions and things, is there? 
as as someone who writes but really struggles to describe faces and facial reactions and stuff. Ron Monroe has my full sympathy. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm the same, but that's why I write scripts instead. So uh... yeah, maybe that's why she's a script writer. Yeah, because <laughs> I meant if I'd had time to go and have a look at the survival novelization and see whether it's something that she didn't do very much of in that. But the only bit I can remember of the survival novelization is the description of the relationship between the Doctor and the Master, which was really good. But that that's. Yeah, so novelization. Yeah. It's a oh. great, it's a great TV story. I mean, that was mm-hmm. it when Rona Monroe, when they said she was coming back. I was very hyped by that. You know, for mm. the, when when it was announced she'd be writing on series ten because I just love love survival. I think it was probably the first or the second um, McCoy story I saw, despite it obviously being the last one broadcast. Um, and mm. you know, for for a fan who's grown up with twenty first century Doctor Who, it, it really does it feels like the closest that classic Doctor Who ever got to twenty first century Doctor Who. Mm. And um, yeah, so Rowan Monroe is just an exciting writer, I think, in terms of Doctor Who. You know, she's not done that much, which I think is sometimes you know a, a bit more exciting. Those writers where every story they've done is kind of brilliant in its own way, but they've not done that many. And it's great that we've mm. now, that she's novelised both those stories. So we have got, you know, for Ronan Monroe, Doctor Who fans, we've got four, sto- two stories, four diff- two different versions of each. You know, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a nice little platter to enjoy. And hopefully at some point I will read the survival novelization and be able to tick off that last box with her. It's quite nice. That, I'm not sure if it's in that Doctor Who magazine interview or whether I read it in the complete history, but... As as a kid, that that stuff with Bill, the way her massive interest in the Ninth Legion what was her growing up. That she she read the book, The Eagle of the Ninth, and it absolutely fascinated her. And she used to go out and walk with her dad and her brother in, in in that area of Scotland and kind of look for clues. And it really fired up her imagination. So it's nice that yeah, that I she think mentioned in the the author's note in this as well that comes at the end of the book. There's a a section yeah. it's, it's very brief but that was a moment but i mean for a start it told me that some of the things were based off real detail that i hadn't realized were based off real detail so i was aware that the legion of the ninth and the sort of mystery with that was a real thing but stuff to do with the pictish um culture in terms of the stones and the symbols that were on them i hadn't all realized was based off of real mm-hmm. detail and it's fascinating how that's kind of grounded in ronan monroe's life i think it's kind of it's kind of great that she got to write a Doctor Who story that's clearly so based off of childhood interest and fantasy because I think sometimes that is when the imagination, you know, is the most fertile. So, and I, you know, countless, you know, days of running through um, country gardens or up various hills in various parts of the UK imagining Doctor Who stories going on. And it's great that she's got to sort of use a Doctor Who story to answer the questions she had as a child in a little fictional way yeah because she mentions particularly um that there's a depiction of a a multi-tentacled beast Mm. and so now she's explained what that is so obviously this is Mm. sort of scratching that itch that she's had from from childhood and thinking well i can i can answer this in my own way and give give an answer that will satisfy me and off yeah. we go. So yeah, it's re- lovely. Reading about those carvings in the stone and how the the sort of comb-like weapon and the mirror thing are taken from that. I was like, this is fascinating. I want to know what really did happen. And I guess that is, you know, obviously the fascination that she's had for, for decades. And, um, yeah, I think 
I think it must all be true, really. Um, that's that's the only logical <laughs> explanation. Hmm. I love um I love that um author's note at the end actually, just where she talk yeah, and the way she talks about um her reasons for writing the story and her interests and how you know it was reflected in the um book as it came out. Um, and I think one of the and just you know I think uh, also just from a political um level the way that she talks about the culture of the picts at the end and you can tell this is a genuine passion of her like that you know this was a culture that was largely erased by roman imperialism and you know this you know i think it shows the extent to which you know this story for her is a chance to reclaim that you know um reclaim give them their own give them their own story back as it were um, you know, and that's that's just a really nice, yeah, thing I think as a motivating factor for you know writing a story. Yeah, it it does feel like it's a more personal story perhaps than survival, and you know I think if I was to choose between the two in terms of a TV story, I do probably still slightly prefer survival, but I think mm. in terms of novelizing it, I think novelizing a story that's so personal has always got to pay off really well. I think, and you know, it's it's always interesting to see which stories writers choose to novelize you know i mean i think it was discussed when those first new series not target novels came out but they asked moffitt to novelize twice upon a time and he basically was like no if i'm gonna do any of them <laughs> it's gonna be um for day of a doctor um and that's you know obviously a completely different one but i think personal probably in its own way because of how much effort he had to pour into mm. making it work at obviously a very significant time in his life um but yeah i do find that fascinating and in terms of russell novelizing rose as well obviously that's so personal because it completely changed the trajectories of his life um that being success but um this is personal for completely different reasons you know coming back to childhood and i think that's that's great and to have this it does feel like a little it feels like a little gift from ron monroe it's great because what's the difference uh i've seen in interviews with ron monroe uh, that she'd never been to Perivale, so she'd imagined it as this really run-down <laughs> place. And then uh, when they went and filmed there, and it was just sort of a nice leafy suburb sort of thing, she was like, oh, this isn't what I was writing about. <laughs> yeah, she's <laughs> writing urban London, which is yeah, great. Yeah, and, that's and it's suburban London. Does, yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas this is where she she grew up and, and, and went all these walks. You know, She said his dad was a geologist, and then her, her brother was uh, became an archaeologist but was already interested in that sort of stuff. So... Yeah, that's uh, that all really seeps into this, and uh, yeah, it gives it gives it a lot of depth. I think it gives it more of an identity. I think, and that that specifically that regional identity, which I think is so important to making a story sing. You know, to have the setting be as important as the characters or the monster or the story, and yeah, that that's I think a great part of this. So one of the changes in the book as well is that. The, the eater of light, the, the monster, is afraid of sound, which, which isn't in the TV show, but didn't really felt like that added anything other than giving the, the sort of Kaylee musicians um, a part to play in proceedings. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because obviously the original TV story does still end with, you know, the musicians going in to the gateway and then that being something that's heard, you know, centuries later from where the can is buried and I don't know whether it was sort of her trying to post-rationalise that or 
whether it was something that was intended earlier and lost, although I don't know if there was any evidence for that. But um, yeah, I see what you mean. It sort of feels like because it's been introduced as a new element, you expect it to lead to something big. Um, and yeah, I think it's a, a nice deal because it does it puts emphasis on that sound in the descriptions and in the in terms of the music. And there's that lovely bit of them all dancing together, described from mm. Bill's perspective before. Mm. The monster comes, which I think is so. Well, the kind of reluctance of Bill to join, and how she's kind of drawn in, and then she sees different people's faces as she goes through the dance, and they're all described differently in terms of how they're reacting and how they're feeling. I thought that was an excellent passage. But so yeah, it's whether it quite justifies the addition of this extra detail for the monster, whether it makes it feel like the monster has maybe one too many weaknesses. Um, or um, whether it, it does work because it's uh, it kind of just allows for the music to feel more implemented into the plot, even as we obviously lose the Missy bit um, at the end, which is, has quite a big discussion about her hearing the music or not as a sort of symbolism for emotionally engaging with the story that she's seeing. Um, which I thought was a, a fascinating bit of thematic work, even though I kind of, as soon as I was reading this novelization, seeing stars, and I was like, there's no way we're keeping that. That's going to be gone because it's too much <laughs> to explain. Um, yeah. And actually, it is another interesting element that we lose the opening, the sort of pre-titles with the children in the present day here in the Cairn. I was more surprised by that because I think it's interesting. If you had have asked me going into the novelization what was I, I was expecting from it, I would probably say like a, an extended prologue with them, if anything, mm. maybe more detail about that. And um, there's a few other bits as well. Like I always remember this, the fact that the setup is that just before they've come out of the TARDIS, that we're going to have a chill day and Nardo was going to watch a film and he's got popcorn <laughs> ready and then this argument breaks out. And I always, I was kind of like, oh, it'd be lovely to see that scene. You know, so I thought maybe we get an opening TARDIS scene. But yeah, it's kind of like everything Ronan Monroe chooses to do is not the things I was expecting, but it's just brilliant in its own way, which I think is, is lovely. Um, yeah. I think, yeah, another detail that I noticed was changed was the um, was one Bill figuring out the TARDIS translation matrix when mm -hmm. she first encounters one of the Roman soldiers, um, you know, which, you know, makes sense from a perspective of, you know, that's an arc plot, well, not an arc plot beat, but it's a broader series beat for um, Bill. Um and that, you know, um, yeah, you kind of assume that going in that the audience reading this novel understands the TARDIS translation circuits and, you know, you don't need to do it for, the, you know, for this specific character in what's more of a standalone novel rather than part of, like, a whole series. Um, and to, like, but that also ends up tying in later to um, the conflict at the end when the Picts and the Romans... Um, realize they can all understand each other um, in language, and that's how their kind of conflicts resolved. And um, here, that's not how it's um, worked through. It's it takes a bit more time, and it's worked through. Um, I think there was less of the Doctor um, in that scene shouting at them, almost Zygon inversion <laughs> style as well, to sit down and talk. Essentially, like I think that's you know. Not quite how it plays out in the TV episode, but again, it's um, yeah, it's still yeah, it still has bits of that in, and like yeah, like I said, I think it can't, and that's kind of yeah, that translation matrix is kind of used as a shorthand to 
sim- you know, simplify the conflict a bit so that it can be resolved within the shorter TV time frame. I think here that sequence gets a lot more room to breathe, and I think you feel the critique of imperialism more strongly for that as well, partly because it's not the, the doctor sitting, you know, shouting and giving them a bit of a lecture and partly because it, um, and, you know, comparing them all to children and partly because it's, you know, yeah, partly because it's um, yeah, given that bit more room to breathe as well. Yeah. It's interesting because I think that bit of Bill kind of realising about the translation, I always found a bit clunky on screen, I think just because, it's like a 10th episode in the series and you know generally in the modern series if it's come up it's come up quite early on you know i think rtd in particular goes out of his way to mention it quite early on you know um whereas i guess it isn't referenced as often in the moffat era possibly i i'm I'm struggling to recall but um also struggling to remember i I do like that it. I, I like it personally in the episode, just from perspective. I like that Bill figures it out on her own. Mm. She doesn't go, "Hey, hang on," and then the yeah. Doctor explains it. She just actually realizes what's going on independently, and I think and that's, that's a great character beat for her that shows how she thinks. I, as I a like person. it, and I think yeah. it sets up well for the ending. I think at the time it was just this feeling of like this is ten episodes. In and I, <laughs> I mean, I know um, Sarah, Sarah Jane only found out about it in her penultimate story of her original run in The Mask of Mandragora. But... Yeah, and all the people before that had never even nah. thought about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yeah, well, Bill's joining a proud tradition now of she's, you know, alongside Sarah Jane of yeah. learning it in a penultimate story. But yeah, no, it's, um, yeah, I, I like it as a character beat in the episode. And I suppose, you know, there's no other natural point for it to come up previously but, in series 10. But I also think it's a good reason to... Um, I think, yeah, I think it's sensible logic, both for story reasons, both because, again, this is a standalone novelization, not part of a wider series, and also because I think it actually makes that, I like the way it plays out, It, you know, I like what cutting it does for the ending conflict, basically, yeah. and the way the conflict between the Picts and the Romans is resolved. Yeah, and as you say, it's kind of, it is a symptom of the fact that these new series novelizations we've had have been very much written as they're their own thing, they're standalone, because there's not an intention for them to go through and tick off every story in the list like they did with Target Novel. So it would be interesting to see if, you know, if decades down the line, these new series novelizations keep coming and we start to get some consecutive stories, whether we will get inconsistencies, you know, of the like of the Daleks and Unearthly Child, you know, Ian and Barbara joining the TARDIS twice, if you follow the <laughs> novelizations. Um, but... At the moment, that's obviously just not a concern because these are done as, you know, a few a year, a few a year or a few every couple of years, little special treats. And I think they're very good that way. And it's probably, you know, in terms of marketing, it's kind of probably the only way they can do them. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I'm right in saying, you you probably remember this side, Joe Grant gets introduced in the Doomsday Machine, I think, doesn't she? Yeah, because, yeah, she's yeah, uh, she's there in the Doomsday Weapon, and then is weapon, introduced yeah. again in terms yeah. of the Autons. <laughs> so yeah, if they'd gone that way, this this could have been Bill's um, introduction story. Yeah, but I think there was a thing in Series Ten, wasn't there, where Bill learned something about the Doctor in every story. This was like a deliberate ploy. So. In Smile, she learned that he's got two hearts, and another one she learns about regeration. Yeah. Um, ta- knock, knock, knock. She finds out the word Time Lord, doesn't she? That just mm, knock, knock. Yeah. So I think that was that was a ploy. But as you say, sort of untethered from Series Ten, 
there's 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 no real point in making a feature of that. Like there's the vault isn't even mentioned, isn't there? That was that was one of the arguments yeah. for Nardole against the Doctor going into the gateway. Yeah, he just says you've got responsibilities. Yeah, it's very vague, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and it's That's interesting because those the phrasing of it at about I can't remember. There's some referring to it as like another universe threatening, you know, thing that he's got to mm. deal with. Almost makes it sound. I mean, I guess it's from Nardole's perspective or whether that the idea of the master getting out could be a universe threatening thing. But the way it reads with that vagueness, it almost sounds like it could be something bigger, which is quite nice. So if you take this novelization on its own and kind of forget about series 10, you've got the sense of the Doctor being involved in this huge thing somewhere else. But, you know, it's, it almost brings back that mystery that we had at the start of series 10. I thought, oh, what's, you know. Yeah, I was going to say it felt like it was earlier in the series than it, than it actually is um, from those hints rather than yes. sort of having the reveal and seeing yes. Missy and the novel implies knowing that. But Bill doesn't, I think this novel implies that Bill doesn't know what the Doctor's other responsibility is, whereas obviously by this mm. point in the TV series, she does because she's met Missy in the light of the land. So that is actually a really interesting um, difference in that regard. So, yeah, I hope I hope we get novelizations of all of them, and that we can all point out the inconsistencies whenever they, uh, they do. I do. I do wonder again if that's uh, like, you know, going back to the first draft of the script symptom, or whether it's a, like that's just a change for novelization to make it more standalone. Because yeah, there is also sort of the possibility that, like, you know, because like like you said, that's arguably an earlier season beat. Bill, you know, um, learning about the translation matrix. Um, if that is the case, was it like, you know, it could plausibly have been the case that it was a, you know, early season story that was moved back or something like that, for example. I mean, I'm also interested whether there was ever a version of the Eaters of Light that didn't have Nardal in, because I'm trying to remember around the time of <clears throat> series 10, it was originally announced that he would be a recurring character who'd be in most but not all of the episodes. And then, of course, when the series was broadcast, he actually was in all of them, albeit only very briefly in Smile and Thin Ice. But I think it was this story in The Empress of, of Mars that people seemed to... There seemed to be an implication at some point that maybe they weren't always intended to be in. But um, that's interesting as well that she... I yeah, in the complete history, I think it does say that uh, he wasn't in earlier drafts. But then... Matt Lucas was was making himself available for more filming. Um, I don't know whether other things didn't go ahead or whether he was just having such a good time. But yes, yeah, as, as time went on, he thought, "Well, I'll, I'll do do as much as you want," kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, he was he was written into to later drafts. But yeah, I mean, I, I know that just before starting in Doctor Who, he'd been in like a, a, doing multiple pilots over in America for pirate pilot season. I don't think a single one of those shows got picked up. So possibly that has something to do with it. Or <laughs> as you say, possibly he just, I mean, he clearly, every story about it seems like he was really enjoying himself on the show. So I'm sure that plays into it as well. But yeah. He is, he is documented as being a massive Doctor Who fan, yeah. isn't he? Outside of this, And so. all of the story stories of him kind of improving on set and stuff and kind of just, it does sound like he had, a fun time, yeah. There's not many companions like that that would, within two days, have their face painted and be totally absorbed <laughs> into, uh, into society. But, um, that is a great idea. Yeah, I quite like it as an idea that just because he uh, this kind of set the stuff that seeded in over this course of series where we learned that he's kind of a bit of a con man almost. You know, that's his backstory. Mm. The idea that just whatever environments he's in, 
he just chameleons. He just is like, you know, so the idea mm. that if, if he wasn't with the doctor, he'd probably be someone completely different to the person we see, but he just acts like how he acts <laughs> because he's there with the doctor. So he decides to, to be a companion, you know, almost fulfilling that, that role, that function. And it's, I suppose it's a bit like the, the thing of him having the Pictish um, face paint is a bit like the gag in Return of Doctor Mysterio where he goes off with the TARDIS or whatever. And then when he comes back, he's in full um, dress saying that he was, you know, a fair, a fair, um, stern but ruler. ruler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if you didn't know, if you just came to this book, there's, there's nothing about his background or, and you would just assume he was a human, wouldn't you? Mm. Um, Whereas, you know, a little bit of, of Bill's backstory is delved into in terms of that she, she went to the university and then she wanted to study. Um, and, and some of the stuff about not being listened to as well, you know, that's, that's where, where the source of the anger, isn't it, when the Doctor doesn't take her theories seriously. Whereas Nardole, he's, he's a bit of a blank, a blank slate in this one almost. He's not, there's nothing about where the Doctor met him. On that topic, it was interesting to me to, like, yeah, I think there were like brief passages, like at the start with the Doctor when you know Bill goes off her separate way and the Doctor goes off the other way to find the Ninth Legion, and so you're actually getting some POV passages for Nardol, which is interesting. Cause obviously, like he is very much the like tertiary companion in the um, or like the second, you know, like Bill's very much the main companion for the series. Um, so he's um you know he's never really the pov character and you just get that moments of it you know and it's it's interesting like experience you know even when he's in um doctor mysterio where he's the only credited companion he manages to basically be the tertiary companion yeah. in that <laughs> um you know um you know kind of grant and lucy kind of take over the yeah main lead roles there um yeah it's um but um, yeah, in yeah, like in this story, he actually gets to be a POV character, if only for a moment, you know. And it's it's interesting experiencing that. But yeah, it it is great how kind of you know Nardole was in fifteen consecutive episodes. Um, I know it's only small parts in the first and the last Christmas special, but it's like we've had so more episodes of him than plenty of other characters, and know almost nothing about him. The sort of more than Bill. Mystery. I think it's great. Yeah. Great on the track one. Is that you, Yates? Where are you? So, Andrew, a new episode of the Doctor Who Fan Audios, episode seven, Libertali has just dropped. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Okay. So, basically, um, the 12th Doctor and um, Ella, um, his companion in our in the series um, 12th Doctor Fan Audios, which I run. Um, yeah, it's a... Yeah, you can find it on YouTube and any podcasting platform you listen to, most likely. Um, yeah, it's um, it's a pirate adventure, this one, with a bit of a sci-fi mystery mixed in. Um, the Doctor and Ella arrive in Libertalia, a pirate haven off the coast of Madagascar. Um, but there's a complication to this, which is that Libertalia is supposedly fictional and was written by Daniel Defoe. Um, and they have to discover if the um, truth of this um, society, which um, is built on ideals of democracy and women's liberation and um, freeing slaves, all of which seem out of place in the 17th century, um, you know, whether it's um, whether it really is, um, whether they're whether it really is fictional 
or whether the truth is something stranger than that. Ooh. I've listened to that, really enjoyed it. Uh, I, like, I like stories where the doctor and the friends have to sort of face a dilemma and, and kind of make, make quite a tough choice. And I thought that was, uh, that was a kind of really good point of this episode. It was, uh, yeah, very entertaining. So I recommend that and I'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Bryn, do you have anything you'd like to point our listeners towards? Yeah, I mean, so as ever, the best place to look for anything with me is my, my Twitter, which is at um, bmitchell underscore T-W-I-T-R. And if you go there, you'll find there's a link, um, my website link, which takes you to the page on We Are Cult, which has all the articles, um, reviews of mostly big Finnish audio dramas and also the occasional Doctor Who book that I've done for We Are Cult. I haven't done one of those in a while but i'm hoping to get back to doing some more and also in my pinned tweet is a link to a wordpress which helpfully has basically just everywhere you can find my work online um so any other podcasts i've done bits of writing there's some free um bits of doctor who short stories i've done over the years for various little fanzines and things so there's nothing huge at the moment but anywhere new that's where you, you'll find it when it does happen and if you want to have a look at what i've done in the past it's all there to see as well fantastic simon you'll be back on trap one soon leading another panel looking at a target novelization i will i will be back with a group of david fisher aficionados um to talk about the androids of tara so they're all very excited and we're really looking forward to that so yeah that will be interesting hopefully we're going to have some david fisher love um coming up so as well as sort of talking about um his um his original which was um, his novel, which was an audio book originally. I'm going to get my teeth in and get that out <laughs> properly. <laughs> but yeah, that should be be good. So we're recording that in a few weeks' time. So that'll be good, I think. Brilliant. And I also have it on good authority that Blake Seven podcast, Maximum Power, might be coming back soon to cover yes, series. Yes, it might well be coming back soon, and we might well be having a special guest coming, a very, very special guest coming to to um, do an episode with us, sort of as a preseason thing. So I'm just organising that at the moment. So I'm not going to say any more, just in case it all falls through. So if you don't hear a special episode, then that's my <laughs> fault. I haven't done done what I need to do, but yeah, it's sounding good. Very, very intriguing. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Um, you can also follow Trap One on Twitter at Trap One underscore. Find all our previous episodes at trapone.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. And we're very lucky to have a very special guest reader reading a passage from this book to to see the episode out, uh, which is Fraser Gregory, who you will also be able to hear it on an upcoming Trap One talking about. Yet another target novel. I think he's doing Stones of Blood with another panel. So, uh, so look out for that one. So, thank you very much to uh, for listening, and for you three for joining me, and to Fraser for the guest reading. Goodbye. Bye. 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 The story has lasted. The story has survived and travelled as far as crows could fly. Generations afterwards, people knew that the hilltops might be hollow. That inside green mounds and ruined cairns, you might find a whole other world, a dark gateway to another realm. They knew that inside the hollow hills were monsters and strange beings and people dancing forever. 
They knew that anyone who stumbled in there would be lost, dancing with them for all of time. Legends. Fairy tales. The hilltops hold nothing but earth and the buried remains of people long since gone. Those people left nothing but a few decorated stones and no one understands what the symbols on the stones mean. The paint that made them bright faded away over a thousand years ago. There are carved images of great bulls and salmon, of a strange object that looks like a mirror, and another that seems to be a huge cone. They are carved over and over with the image of a fearsome beast with great bulbous eyes and tentacles spilling from its long snout. And, if you can find it, there is one green hill in a remote glen that might prick your senses, that might, if you sit long enough on its grassy slope, give you the sense that you could slip into another world if you linger. Put your ear to the ground there. You'll hear it. The music still playing in the dark.